Welcome back to The Past. This is Dating Ourselves, the podcast that talks everything 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. I'm your host, Adam, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Brian and Paul. Hello. Hey, guys. Let's get out those black balloons and the high-fiber cake, folks, because we're officially over the hill. That's right. It's episode 40. Uh, hey, all right. <laughs> Paul, you, you groaned a bit. Well, you know, it's... I always used to joke that I can't believe I'm 40, and they're like, you're not 40, and I'm, I'd say, no, but I can see it from here, and now <laughs> it's, you know, much closer to the truth. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like that uh, that scene in Holy Grail, where that knight is just running across that field, and he's, like, forever away, and every time they keep panning to him, he's still forever and forever, and all of a sudden, he's right there, and he heads the guard. Was that Lancelot? Is that Lancelot in that scene? I'm trying to remember now. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, if you missed our last episode, you should really check it out when the gang and I discussed the vintage board game Tinder. I mean, mystery date. <laughs> You can find that in all our past episodes at www.datingourselvespodcast.com, on iTunes, Google Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. I actually found mine while doing spring cleaning in the garage today. Really? Yeah. Did yeah, you? It was behind the lawnmower, of all things. You have a lawnmower, too? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in what part of Michigan is it spring yet? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know. Yeah, I thought they were skipping it this year. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyway, we really appreciate our listener support, and we'd like to share some kind words left by one of those listeners on iTunes about our show. If you'd like to leave us a five-star written review on iTunes, we would love to read it on air as a way to say thanks. sad to report that we currently have no new written five-star reviews, although it appears someone did do an epic fail and leave us a textless five-star review. Which we still appreciate, but... <laughs> Which we still appreciate, but since iTunes doesn't credit people with those, we just have to thank the entire internet for your kind support. <laughs> thank you, internet. <laughs> Stay strong. Thank you, Al Gore. <laughs> Oh, well, five-star reviews are always encouraged, and if they're written, we can actually read those five-star written reviews on the air. Let me say five-star written reviews one more time. (laughs) And call 555-STAR written reviews. (laughs) All right. Uh, (laughs) You want to get on our show? You got to give us the five stars. That's right. You do your time, you leave your five. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... Make sure to leave those reviews, guys. They actually are really helpful in terms of iTunes algorithms and shit like that. Um, Technical term. And be sure to tell your (laughs) friends about dating ourselves. Yes. So let's get started. This week, I'm going to be leading a discussion on the Warren Beatty film, Dick Tracy. So exciting stuff. Is it actually Beatty? Because I've said Beatty my entire life, and I've now heard you say Beatty twice. It and I'm very Beatty. confused. I always thought I it was it's... I always thought it was Warren Beauty and they just spelt it wrong. <laughs> he, <laughs> is he is quite a handsome. Man of wax. <laughs> he is <Yes>. quite handsome. <laughs> he, he was sculpted by Da Vinci many, many years ago. Now this with all the hair gel, hair coloring, and all the other stuff that requires him to look that good, I bet he would go up in flames in an instant <laughs> at the uh, 
at the drop of a match. <laughs> Not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, I require some chemical enhancement myself to, you know, look this good in the morning. But I mean, I could smell the cologne uh, across the TV screen during the viewing of this movie. Oh, I'm sure if he slid on the couch just wrong or drags his stocking feet across the carpeting, he would go up in a blaze. So <laughs> he's like the Hindenburg just waiting yeah. for a spark. <laughs> Static attraction, baby. Well, remember, guys, we're going to be picking next episode's topic at the end of the show. It's going to be nostalgia combat. Nostalgia, nostalgia combat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I try to get these guys to do it in time. I get my little baton out and whatever. Whatever. It's going to be me <laughs> and Sony Walkman. Versus Paul and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We also will visit our old friend, the Hopper of Imagination, to get another topic for Adam. So, Adam, tell us about that, Dick Tracy. Thanks, guys. We'll see you later. (laughs) Till next time. (laughs) All right. So, Dick Tracy. uh, This is a topic I was really excited about. Dick Tracy was a movie that I absolutely loved as a kid. But... Um, No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You just made it sound like you were excited and you aren't anymore, so... Oh, no. I'm just saying. I was, like... I was I was very excited that we got to talk about this because uh, it was such a uh, good movie and such a favorite of mine growing up. So that that was pretty cool to get that. But um, the movie is actually based on a 1930s comic strip by the same name. It was created by Chester Gould. the the uh, The original comic strip was created by Chester Gould. And then the Dick Tracy movie was released in 1990. It was produced, directed, and starred by Warren Beatty, or Beatty, or however you say it, uh, with a whole host of other big names in it, too, which was uh, pretty cool. Uh, But before we get into that, we'll talk about a few other things. Um, So as I mentioned, it uh, starred uh, and was directed and produced by Warren Beatty, uh, or Beatty. And then the other big thing, and we'll touch on this, I'm sure, a little bit more later on, is the music director, the kind of leader of the music for this movie, was Danny Elfman, who has a whole slew of other uh, music credits to his name. And uh, Brian, what did you say? Yeah, he's of Oingo Boingo fame. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah. Yep, Oingo Boingo. <laughs> yep, the 80s new wave band. <laughs> but the uh, what what he uh, seems to be known for more nowadays is his music scoring, and uh, he he's got a very iconic style uh, of music, I would say. Oh, and, definitely. You know, a, a style of especially orchestration and stuff. And so uh, this was something that the three of us, Brian, Paul, and I. Actually, last weekend, I think it was, or a couple weekends ago, uh, watched this movie together in preparation, and that was one thing that we picked out right away. It was we were sitting there, and it was like, is this Danny Elfman that's doing this music? Because it's so such a unique style, and he, he it's just such a uh, 
consistent sound that he gets and so it was like all right this is cool i like that yeah i picture uh, him sitting in front of a piano with a uh, fine scotch and just uh just banging away while watching the dailies of a film <laughs> that sounds about, sounds about right <laughs> one of the uh things i was watching it on dvd because we all like basically watched it remotely but we timed it so it all start together to sync up and um the like title screen the music there is absolutely epic and what it reminds me of you know no surprise is the score from the first tim burton batman movie with michael yep, keaton yes. and nicole yep. kidman and you know uh jack nicholson and you know also by danny elfman you know composed by danny elfman so it has that same quality of like that over the top kind of bass swooping in and very in your face but a lot of the other music that was written for this too because it was the 30s is that jazzy lounge singer kind of music and yeah it's yep. so unique so cool well and he focuses a lot on winds and brass too which is one way that you can always kind of tell his scores because he's got a very band almost kind of like a big band style but uh, yeah. a band style as opposed to like more you know uh, strings and things like that so definitely gives it that kind of dark gritty feel and I, th I think that's one thing that all three of us kind of agreed on too which uh, Brian just brought up is that not only does the music kind of feel like the Batman movie from 1989 uh, but the movie itself like kind of the whole feel of the movie feels very much like that 1989 Batman film and considering this movie was released in June of 1990 it wouldn't have been all that uh, uh, hard to believe that they were influenced in some way by yeah, that that's film. a good point yeah because like if you watch the movie uh just like with Batman uh the the 1989 and what 1991 version or whatever the city and everything is very dark very brooding kind of a almost like a gothic style to it but where dick tracy kind of takes a step away from that uh but it really kind of adds to it is to kind of keep the comic feel even though everything's very dark like the backgrounds and the settings are very dark the characters are all very uh vibrant like wear very vibrantly colored clothes um, so if you've never seen Dick Tracy before, he's iconic for wearing a big, bright yellow trench coat in a yellow fedora. And he's so basically they... a more badass version of the man with the yellow hat. I was actually um, yes. waiting for pause, George. and I was just going to say he is my preferred version of the man in the yellow hat. <laughs> so uh, he he wears this bright yellow trench coat, bright yellow hat. And then all of the other characters in the movie also wear very vibrant clothing. For instance, there is a character named, uh, is it Big Boy or Big Baby? Big, uh, Big which Boy. character? Uh, yeah, Bi uh, Big Boy Caprice, yeah. uh, who's kind of the main crime boss, always wears like a very bright red, uh, like a three-piece suit. And then there's a character named The Kid who also wears like very bright reds. Uh, with white shirts and stuff like that. Yeah. So, and, and Mumbles has got like the purple and black combo. Um, yeah. Like kind yep. of almost like a fuchsia purple too. Like it's very vibrant. Yep. Yep. So yeah, I think that's one thing that kind of stuck out to all of us was 
uh, you know, even though it kind of takes a little bit of a step away from the Batman movies, which are just very dark in general, as far as the settings and the coloring of the costumes and stuff, uh, they they kind of keep that darkness in the setting, but have these very vibrant clothes to really make the characters pop on the the screen. Uh, now, something I found really interesting as well, and I, I would I would love to if you did research on this, I'd love to hear more about it. But how the movie was shot, it very much feels like it's in three dimensions. But not like three dimensions, like IMAX, 3D glasses type 3D. It's more like like the old Disney films where they would have different celluloid things where you have like a background on one level and then the minor characters on one level, the major. The way it feels, like it feels like you're actually traveling through a comic strip. Not even just like by the colors, but like the way that they shoot it and produce it is it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I I didn't come across like specifically how they did that, but a lot of the the backgrounds, uh, like the actual set backgrounds and things like that, you're right, look kind of like that celluloid look, or even uh, to an extent, almost like the uh, big painted canvas backgrounds yeah. that they a lot mm-hmm. of times used back in the seventies, eighties. You're right. Like that was one thing that was really kind of interesting is everything like the the setting, even though it was very dark, had a very cartoonish feel to it. Kind of. Yeah. Like when they'd show the cityscapes and stuff like that of Batman, uh, you know, Gotham City and stuff like that. So it almost leads me to believe it probably was something along those lines of either the celluloid or the big uh matte paintings that they would use for the backgrounds because it definitely feels like that first tim burton batman movie but there's also aspects of it that kind of remind me of like who framed roger rabbit yeah Um, oh for sure and like cool world a little lesser known but very much the same and it's so shocking that those two movies have like legitimate animated characters in those movies alongside live actors where this, like, you almost expect that to happen, and it never does. But they have so many characters, I'm sure Adam will get into this in more detail momentarily, that just have all this crazy makeup and prosthetics and stuff. Especially any of the mobsters. They look, <laughs> like, absolutely comic book. Like, real life, but straight from the pages of a Dick Tracy graphic novel. Oh, for sure. It's worth for noting, sure. um, just to reinforce all the points you guys have brought up, this movie actually did win three Academy Awards, Best Original Song, Best Makeup, and Best Art Direction. Wow. Makes sense, yeah. Which is, it's funny, you know, not knowing that previous to watching the movie, and then have those be, like, the three things that all of us picked up on that really made this movie special. Yeah. Agreed. Yep. Now, uh, I did just uh, come across this when you were bringing it up. Um, You know, kind of going back to the... uh, the look to it and stuff like that it did say they limited the palette to just seven colors uh primarily red green blue and yellow and then a few others like uh brian mentioned the purple and uh stuff like that to kind of go back to the original comic strip origins and stuff like that and i actually was able to find they did matte paintings for the, the backgrounds of it to give it that kind of comic book look to it even though it was combined with the live action um 
And it did say that they combined that with over 57 paintings on glass, which is uh, probably how they gave you that look of moving through the comic strips, uh, because that's a well-known technique for how they would do animation like that back in the day. I think that was uh, really famous with maybe Bambi or something like that, where uh, like basically, if you've never seen this technique employed before, you'd take glass panes and you would paint on them like a specific piece of the scene. And then you would stack those uh, up so that eventually once you had them all stacked, it would give you this full scene but then as the camera was looking at it, you could either move the panes of glass to uh, evoke like movement in the picture, or you could zoom in and that would allow you to look like you were actually zooming in through the scene and going yeah. into something specific. Because I know there was two scenes in mind that I, I can visualize that that must have been what they did. And the first is there's uh, the train tracks. So... Before we get into all the spoilers, here's our first spoiler alert. Um, they they meet this kid whose name is Kid, and Dick Tracy is chasing after him through these train tracks because he stole someone's wallet or a watch or something like that. I think it's a watch. And the way that that whole scene looks is just it's it's breathtaking, and it feels like you're literally like in a living comic. And the scene that immediately follows that is they go to where the kid lives, which is in this shanty town on the edge of the city. That right there is so cool because they're like walking through the buildings and stuff. And it literally, it almost looks like a play set. Like, yeah. like watching something on Broadway. Like it, yeah. it, it looks like it's filmed. It's, it's really interesting. It doesn't look like it's like an on, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like on location type scene. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's intentionally made to look not real. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm trying to figure out how to best word that, but. But yeah, I don't know. I thought that those two scenes back to back were just so cool, the way that they were produced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they really did a great job making it look very comic booky, especially for the time. Like nowadays, obviously, that's extremely easy. Like look at uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That sure. just won all sorts of awards for the graphics and the production and stuff like that. So Nowadays, with digital animation and stuff like that, it's super easy. Back then, they had to rely on, you know, practical set design to do that kind of stuff. They they didn't have the technology to be able to do digital animation and stuff like that. So the the way they went about doing these things back in the day was unbelievable because they really had to figure out how do we do something like that? Like, how do we add a cartoon character like Roger Rabbit to a scene in which live action characters are there and stuff. It, it was right, really amazing. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, but besides the, the feel of it, I guess we can kind of get into the actual like story and the characters and stuff like that. Now, now that we kind of set up what this world looks like. Um, mm-hmm. So the main character obviously is Dick Tracy, who is a uh, police officer, a detective uh, with the uh, police department and uh, he is dating uh, this lady named Tess Trueheart. And then uh, they... It's a good, good name for a girlfriend, Trueheart. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. <laughs> Especially a private... or He's not a private investigator, but a detective's yeah, girlfriend. Yep. 
I think it's also important to note, too, because the name Dick as an actual first name is not terribly common anymore. It's now used as more of a uh, slang pejorative for uh, a gentleman's bits. But that was also what people would call detectives. Yep. For sure, it was Dick. So, yep. like, you know, like calling someone in the army, you know, a, a G.I. Joe or, you know, something like that. Or, But that was kind of like the nickname that you would give people that were that were detectives or cops was Dick. Right. So. Yep. Yep. Okay. So we have uh, Warren Beatty, uh, who plays Dick Tracy. Uh, you have Glenn Headley, who plays Tess Trueheart. Charlie Corsmo plays the kid, and he's like an orphan that, uh, like Brian kind of alluded to, uh, he gets caught stealing by Dick Tracy. Uh, he chases him down, finds out that the kid is uh, like an orphan, lives on his own, is like surviving by eating out of garbage cans. So he kind of takes him in, him and uh, Tess start to kind of raise him together. Uh, Then you have Al Pacino as Alphonse Big Boy Caprice, who's the main crime boss in it. And uh, he's got a great look in this movie. Uh, they, They definitely changed up his look quite a bit gave him kind of this greased back like slicked back hair i don't know if it was like prosthetics or whatever but they uh actually made him look kind of like skinnier in the face than usual um and gave him this pencil thin mustache um it, just a great look for him as this crime well, that's what boss. i couldn't figure out is if they made his face slimmer or if because his but they gave him like a hunchback just because his yeah. body's so huge i don't know if that made him look that like that very skinnier well in the be. face because his body is like kind of grotesque in a way. Yeah. Um. There's a scene because I mean when you're a mobster, your your whole goal is to take over a city. You know, property by property, um, politician by politician, and so he takes over this nightclub and is teaching the girls this whole new song and dance number <laughs> and he's like up there singing and dancing with them terribly and it's just so awkward to see all these like little skinny twig women in their little lounge lizard dresses and gowns and he's up there like a big freaking beached walrus <laughs> um. <laughs> oh it's such a great scene too like i remember when we were watching that uh together that scene stuck out to me as one of the funnier ones in the movie, because it's just his movement is so erratic. It almost, from uh, to an extent, reminds me of if any of you have ever seen uh, the music video to "The Creep" by The Lonely Island. It oh. he <laughs> he moves he moves kind of like they do in that, where he's got these weird like T Rex arm movements and stuff. It's really funny. <laughs> so uh al pacino another big name obviously uh, oh going going back to charlie corsmo real quick too uh i meant to mention uh the the name might not sound familiar but if you've ever seen hook uh with robin williams he plays jack in that the son of uh of peter pan in, yep. in that that yep. i think that's really one of his only other big credits i don't think he was in a ton else uh, but I could be wrong on that. It was funny as I recognized him right away as being the boy from Hook. But when I watched uh, Dick Tracy when I was younger, I never made that connection. Although it's possible that I watched Dick Tracy long before Hook and that could be why. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
so on top of them, uh, you have Madonna as Breathless Mahoney, who's an entertainer at the club that Brian was just alluding to that that uh, big boy uh, is showing the dancers how to dance at. Um, and she also uh, kind of gets involved in a little bit of a love triangle with Dick Tracy. Uh, mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. top of that, you have uh, some other, just like other random characters and stuff like that. Dick Van Dyke actually plays a district attorney in that uh, movie called John Fletcher. Uh, you have Kathy Bates from uh, like Misery and uh, Waterboy. About Schmidt, Waterboy. <laughs> uh, she plays a stenographer. Um, you have Dustin Hoffman, the great Dustin Hoffman plays Mumbles, who's a uh, one of the henchmen for for Big Boy, and uh, he gets his name from the fact that he constantly mumbles. Uh, you he can't was absolutely any- perfect for that role too. Oh yeah, like yeah, you could just have his mannerisms way. and the way he embraced that character. It was hilarious. If I was like putting together a cast on paper, he wouldn't have been the person that came to mind uh, to play that character, but he executed it so well. He was the perfect person for that character. Oh, absolutely. I think what made him so convincing is that you could have picked anybody that's just going to mumble and be kind of meek and shy, but like he was like, like any other gangster would be like yelling and shouting and stuff like that. But everything that's coming out of his mouth is literally like his lips are together. He's just mumbling, but the expressions on his face are all like, you know, copper, I'm not going to tell you, you know, who, who killed so-and-so I'm not going to tell you where the money is. I'm not going to tell you about your girl, but he's just talking like, (laughs) but he has the same like expressions and excitement and, but just (laughs) (laughs) there's actually a great scene where he's being interrogated uh, by Dick Tracy and they have him up against this white wall and they have like a spotlight on him that is getting very hot. So Mumbles is sitting there getting interrogated and he's going through, you know, going <laughs> and uh, they're, they're uh, messing with him and stuff like that. Like they poured this uh, big glass of water and Dick Tracy looks like he's going to hand it to him because Mumbles is like at this point sweating because he's got this bright spotlight on him and he's wearing a big suit. And uh, then Dick Tracy, of course, takes it and uh, drinks it himself. Mumbles just starts freaking out like, come on, like, what are you doing, man? Like, I really needed that. (laughs) Well, and James Conn's in the movie as well. So of of Godfather fame. Yep. Um, As uh, Spud Spaldoni. Well, I mean, Al Pacino is of Godfather fame as well. That's That's true. That's true. It's very true. You also have uh, Mandy Patinkin of uh, Princess Bride fame. He's Inigo Montoya uh, in that yep. he plays 88 Keys, who's the piano player. There's also uh, a henchman named Prune Face, who, just like you can imagine with a prune, like has these like big wrinkles on his face. There's Paul Sorvino, who's been in a whole bunch of uh, movies, I believe, uh, no, he wasn't in The Rocketeer. I'm trying to think of what he's been in. Uh, but he's someone that you'd recognize. He plays Lips Mantis, who uh, is called so because he's got these like crazy, not even like big lips per se. His lips are like really long. Like his mouth is way too big for his face. It reminds me of like the, the mobsters in like old Bugs Bunny. Yes. yes. 
Like the very, very just constant frown all the way down like past his yep. chin. Yep. Um, and then there's uh, probably the most notable or, or like the one, I guess the one that most people would recognize as far as a uh, one of the criminals in this was Little Face, who's literally <laughs> a guy with this absolutely gigantic head, but his face is not proportional to his head. It was it's yeah. like a normal sized face. But his head is absolutely gigantic. <laughs> uh, can I make a comment about Paul Servino real quick? Yeah, or just yeah, uh, uh, lips in general. So, spoiler, you know, we've already covered spoiler alert. But when uh, Big Boy needs to acquire the club uh, from lips, uh, after he signs the deed over, he gives him a bath. A bath is they put him in a crate and dump cement in, and then they have a trap door over a bridge on the waterfront that drops it into the um, ocean. Yeah, yep. And yep. when I was doing research for this movie on the Wikipedia page, uh, the direct quote is, he then kills Lips with a cement overcoat, and then it highlights cement overcoat as a clickable link, Ooh. and there is actually a Wikipedia definition of cement shoes, cement overcoat, or Chicago overcoat. <laughs> Wow, interesting. Which, you know, it, it makes sense because, you know, we've all heard of a variation on the Chicago overcoat. Uh, but the fact that it has its own Wikipedia page, <laughs> I find to be hilarious. That is pretty awesome. <laughs> so since I've gone through all this, I'm just going to read the quick brief synopsis of the Chicago overcoat. Yeah. Which is a largely Please. fictional method of execution and or body disposal, usually associated with criminals such as the mafia or gangs it involves weighting down the victim who may be dead or alive with concrete and then throwing them into the water and hope the body will never be found <laughs> luca brazzi swims with the fishes <laughs> <laughs> yep although he got it with the piano wire didn't he yes yes yes, yes. okay did. thought so yep yep so um the only other one, uh, the only other person that we haven't talked about yet, as far as uh, actors or actresses in the movie, that's fairly famous is Catherine O'Hara, who you would probably recognize from either the um, Home Alone movies as uh, Kevin McAllister's mother, or uh, she's also been in a bunch of the. Oh, what's the director I'm thinking of? Like Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman. Uh, he was the six-fingered man in The Princess Bride. Christopher Guest? Christopher Guest, yes. The director, Christopher Guest, uh, has done like a million movies, like uh, Best in Show, which is about dog show competitions with uh, Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy. Um, there's the Waiting for Guffman. There was, uh, oh gosh, there was another one that was real uh, famous. I'm blanking out right now. Um that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, there there's a bunch of like they're they're uh, like popular kind of weird comedies from the '90s and stuff. But anyway, uh, she she also is in this movie as Texi Garcia, who's one of the female criminals in the movie. Uh, but the uh, basically the the premise of the movie is you you have uh, Big Baby uh, Caprice who is kind of the main criminal uh, of the movie. And, of course, being the detective, 
uh, Dick Tracy is always kind of looking to stop him and his gang and uh, stuff like that from taking over more territory in the town. Uh, but then after a while, a new criminal kind of comes up and that character was called, uh, oh gosh, hold on, I lost it. The blank, uh, the blank. And it's kind of a weird uh, character because it kind of sounds like, uh, you, you guys remember in Star Wars when Princess Leia goes to rescue Han Solo when he's frozen in carbonite and uh, she's wearing that mask thing. It's got this like really weird distortion to the voice. That's kind of what the blank sounds like, except just kind of like the name implies, uh, the blank has no face. It's like this weird amorphous blob for a head uh, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, it's almost like a, like, a, like a plain mannequin, like like a dress form would have, like just a yes. completely blank face. Um, it kind of reminds me of like, the way that that character dresses almost reminds me of like Rorschach from Watchmen. Yeah. Um, yes. Except yeah. there would be no black spots on the mask. It would literally just be completely flush and clear. And, and flesh colored. Like it, it, yeah. Yeah. It, it wasn't like white or black or anything like that. It was like flesh colored, uh, which was kind of a weird look to it. But um, so that character kind of comes in and disrupts everything by um, the, the gang actually tries to frame Dick Tracy for a murder to get him out of the way. They uh, knock him out and then they murder this person and uh, bring Dick Tracy in, put a gun in his hand. So when the cops come and show up, he's sitting there with this dead body and a gun in his hand with the person that's been shot to death. Poor Dick Van Dyke. He didn't deserve that. That's true. That's very true. That, that, he did that's, that. who, that's who he killed, by the way. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not confusing my my, my ticks. <laughs> <laughs> Diagnosis murder. So, that's right. So I as, will say that he looked older in this movie than he did in the first season of Diagnosis Murder. Yeah. So it was either really good makeup or he was just having a really bad day when they brought him in to shoot all his scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, this scene is kind of interesting because, as uh, one of these guys pointed out, apparently the only thing that was stopping most of the crime in town was Dick Tracy, regardless of the fact that there's an entire police force on top of Dick Tracy that uh, can can uh, participate in taking down crime. But as soon as he is out of the picture, crime goes like completely rampant in the town. It's like the most crazy montage ever. And I mean, the yeah. late 80s, early 90s are known for having these montages in like every movie. But this in particular, it's like, okay, I'm in this hotel room with a gun in my hand and there's a dead body in here. And it looks like I killed him. I've been framed. So now he goes to jail. And then for the next three minutes, it's just gangsters just throwing money in the air and gambling and drinking and like punching Killing. people. And it's it's absolutely crazy um pandemonium i would say yeah oh absolutely <laughs> i will say that the frame job that they did on dick tracy was fairly like original for the time it was almost like something you'd see in a mission impossible movie yeah, oh yeah definitely yeah like the just the way they set it all up and i 
I mean, it's almost cliche now, but at the time, this to me at least seemed fairly original and was kind of exciting. Well, and that's yeah. kind of a, a unique nuance. Well, that's hard to say. Unique nuance is that how he got there in the first place was that he was, I don't want to say poisoned, but he was gassed by the blank. Yep. And then was brought in. And so now all of a sudden, you know, Big Boy and all of his affiliates are like, we don't know who this faceless person is, but um, if they're going to help us get rid of, of Tracy, they're, they're all right with us. But it doesn't end up staying that way, right? You know, right. like. Yeah, right. So eventually he, he uh, gets out of his holding or or whatever you want to call that. And uh, now he's got to kind of figure out who it was that framed him or, or set him up. Again, there's this kind of story where, you know, he has the kid with him and then he's dating this uh, woman named Tess Trueheart. Uh, but Breathless, the dancer, the singer from the Ritz Lounge, shows up and kind of messes up his life by kissing him. And uh, it happens right as the kid and uh, Tess are showing up. So I don't think, I don't remember uh, off the top of my head, she doesn't actually see him kissing her, right? It's more of like... No, he does. He She, uh, she walks uh, around right. the corner, sees it, and then backs up to distract the kid so that he won't. That's right. That's yeah. right. I, I got it backwards. I was thinking the kid was the one that saw and, it first. But and know. I think it's important to say, too, that the reason that she was there, at least in Tracy's mind, was that she was affiliated with Lips. Lips was then given his uh, concrete bath. Yeah. And then... Um, and then all of a sudden now she's hanging out with Big Boy. So he was looking for some type of um, testimony out of her, some type of you know statement saying that, you know, I saw this happen. I saw his murder. I, I, I know what's going on. So I think that's why he let it go on as long as he did is like, you know, I'll protect you. You know, you, you can testify in court. And then, you know, that's my job is I'd protect you. And she just keeps kind of in a way that Madonna only can, uh, just kept coming on to him over and over again. And eventually it got, you know, somewhat physical. And that's, and that's when Tess and the kid arrive back to the apartment. But I think that's important to point out is there's a lot tied up in like Tracy could just avoid her, but he knows that she's like the only person that he has a chance with in terms of locking big boy up because she has probably seen something that, um, the big boy's been trying to cover up. Right. So yeah. she works at the club and everything. Right. So uh, Tracy uh, tries to lead a raid on Club Ritz, which is the club, again, that big boy owns. But uh, it's actually so that Bug Bailey, uh, the officer, can enter the building to operate a uh, installed listening device so they can hear big boy's criminal activities and things like that. Um, and they try to set up uh, Big Boy from there so they can find out all of his criminal activities and things like that. Well, during the ensuing raid, Dick Tracy ends up uh, getting cornered or uh, trapped by Pruneface, uh, one of the henchmen. And he's about to get killed as he's about to 
you know, learn the fate of Lips Mantis and all that. Uh, but then the blank steps in and actually foils the hit on Dick Tracy and saves his life. And that helps him to try and get uh, breathless to get testimony that she he needs to put Big Boy away. Uh, but yeah, as they mentioned, she only agrees to do that if he gives in to the advances of, uh, you know, kissing her or whatever. Uh, and on from there. Uh, so then Dick Tracy is drugged. He gets knocked out uh, by the blank. They frame him for the murder and he ends up going to jail. Uh, during this time, Big Boy's business goes crazy. As we mentioned, the you montage have this big of crazy. Bi- montage yep. of craziness. <laughs> um, and so uh, this goes on until the blank frames Big Boy for Tess's kidnapping, Tess Trueheart. Uh, and then eventually Dick Tracy is released uh, by his colleagues on New Year's Eve. He interrogates Mumbles in that scene that we were talking about earlier uh, with the water. And then uh, he arrives at a shootout outside of the club at uh, the Club Ritz. And he uh, sees Big Boy flee to a drawbridge and ties Tess to the gears. Uh, Then the fight is halted when the blank appears and holds both men at gunpoint, offering to share the city with Tracy after Big Boy is dead. Uh, however, Junior, which is the new name for uh, the kid, because he was at uh, this point adopted by Dick Tracy's uh, D- Dick Tracy yeah, and Tess. Because I think that's the name he requested was Dick Tracy Junior. Yeah, it's, yep. it's a very like you got something in your eye kind of moment, you know? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so uh, Junior shows up. Big Boy uh, uses that distraction to open fire before Tracy sends him off the bridge, falling to his death while junior rescues Tess. The blank falls off as well. And he goes down and pulls off blanks mask to reveal that it was Madonna's breathless Mahoney the whole time, which that was actually a pretty big reveal. It was a shock like, for sure. Yeah. That was not something that, I saw it coming. I I had even seen this movie several times growing up and was surprised when I saw it again uh, a couple weeks back when we watched this because I had forgotten that's how it ended. And it kind of even got me again. It was like, oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Almost as good of a uh, turn as uh, the end to The Usual Suspects. I don't know if I'd go that far, but <laughs> I see what you're saying. <laughs> I thought it was a pretty big shock ending. I didn't expect that. No, I, I definitely agree with you. It was a big shock ending. Um, it And it definitely resonated with me, but I think that goes back to, I don't know if it was like the young age at which I watched it, but things that almost seem cliche now were like just awesome in this movie. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. for sure. Absolutely. And I think some of the things that were cliche were meant to be cliche too. Like I think it's supposed to feel oh, like yeah. an old like dragnet Friday type of. Well, yeah, it's definitely like, even though uh, they change a little bit up to make it look comic booky, it definitely takes its cues from like the old noir style. Maltese Falcon. mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Yeah. Those old detective shows and movies and things like that. Uh, 
so it definitely has that look and feel to it, even though they have kind of comic book eyes it as well, which is definitely a word. Look it up, comic book eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so then, anyway, after uh, the uh, Breathless Mahoney uh, is mortally wounded from the fall, uh, she kisses Tracy before dying. Uh, at this point, it's obvious that Tracy was not involved in the murder, and so all charges are dropped against him. And then Tracy, of course, uh, to get his happy ending, proposes to Tess, uh, which is interrupted by a report of a robbery in progress. So then he leaves and goes off with uh, Dick Tracy Jr. to investigate the robbery in progress. Yep. And that's how it ends. But Holy crap, comicized is a word. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there you have it, folks. Anyway. <laughs> so, so one of the other things that we haven't talked about yet, and I feel like it's kind of important, is this movie introduced probably one of the coolest bits of technology that showed up in a 90s movie about the 1940s or 50s or whenever this movie is supposed to take place which is the phone the watch radio watch. or the radio watch yes so agreed that's so cool dick tracy uh always keeps in constant contact with his uh his police station via a watch on his wrist that does not have a face or anything like that. It instead looks kind of like an old-timey radio uh, face, like that kind of mesh look to it. And he can communicate with his bosses and the people at the the police station via this really awesome watch. Agreed. And when I got my first smartwatch, the very first thing I did with it yep. was make a phone call and talk through the watch. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's I so mean, great. Literally, that was like one of the first things I thought of. Like, basically, there was two thoughts I had when I first got a smartwatch. One, I wanted to be able to talk th uh, through it like Dick Tracy. And two, I wanted to get a watch face that looked like the watch from 007 Goldeneye on Nintendo 64. Yep. That oh, was the second awesome. thing I did with the watch is I installed that watch face, but it killed the battery too fast. Oh, I thought yeah. you were going to say you installed a laser so you could break out of your jail cell, but <laughs> never mind. No, but it was nice to see how much ammunition I was carrying without having to uh, disrobe. <laughs> Proximity mines? I didn't even know I had those. Oh, boy. <laughs> what happens if I click this when they're on my belt? <laughs> Not good things. <laughs> <laughs> so uh besides the uh you know the stylization and uh the well the art direction and the music direction of danny elfman uh this movie of course had several songs that were big because of the participation of madonna in the movie yep. uh, so she had so, uh, some famous songs uh, that came out uh, I think the one that was kind of real popular was called Sooner or Later, I Always Get My Man. Yep. Uh, there I was think also, that's the one that actually won the award, wasn't it, for original I believe song? so, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yes. Uh, and that was written by, uh, I just came across it, uh, that was written by Stephen Sondheim. Uh, who, that makes sense, because it sounds like Sondheim. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Like it has a very much into the woods type of feel to it. Mm -hmm. So. If you guys don't know who Sondheim is, he's uh, one of the more prolific musical uh, writers in history. You know, like you got Sondheim and 
uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Rodgers and Hammerstein. Those are kind of the big names. In I would the, probably include him closer to Rodgers and Hammerstein than I would Andrew Lloyd Webber. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But I yeah. just meant like people that were like known for prolific. Yeah, you're you're, writing, you're but... doing your your Mount Rush Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I got you. Mount Rush Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> Trademark so, that shit. <laughs> so besides sooner or later, there was also more live alone and like it back in business. And what can you lose? Uh, like, like we mentioned sooner or later, more were both uh, performed by Madonna. Um, and then you also had a duet with Madonna and uh, Mandy Patinkin, the, which was what can you lose? Mel Torme, who's a famous uh, like jazz singer, sang "Live Alone and Like It," uh, yep. and then there was some other famous people that uh, sang "Back in Business." So it was pretty impressive. They got like a pretty good group of people to do the music in it, which makes sense why they would end up winning uh, awards for the music direction in this particular film. Yeah, absolutely. Any uh, final thoughts? That, I was going to ask you guys, was there anything else that stuck out to you guys or anything that you guys wanted to talk about? I was just going to say, in the opening scene of the movie, uh, Dick Tracy, before you see his face, he's gearing up and he's putting on the watch and he's listening to the news on this red uh, table AM radio. And the colors and the finish on that thing are absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I would love to have it at my house. I actually collect AM radios. That would be Um, so cool. And uh, I would love to find one that actually looked like that, finish it, gut it, and uh, put an Amazon Echo in it. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That would be awesome. Yeah, I didn't really have anything else uh, to say. Um, I I think that the watching this movie as a kid was very fantastical and super interesting. Um, You know, it had a lot of qualities of like James Bond and other things like that, but was more approachable for like someone that was, you know, I think I was like, what, five or six when this came out. So, I mean, it was much more approachable for someone that age as opposed to like, you know, you only live twice or something like that or Moonraker. Yeah. Um, Dr. No. But watching it as an adult, it's, it's crazy to see how many huge names there were involved in this movie, whether it was on-screen talent or, you know, behind the camera, you know, writing the music, performing the music. I mean, it's just it's just unbelievable the the level of, of talent and um yeah, I I, I, I don't know. It, it's it's staggering to watch something like that now and be like, wow, these people have all done so many amazing things and they all came together to to do a crazy comic book movie essentially. And that's so commonplace now with the, you know, the Marvel cinematic universe, but in the early nineties, it was not normal to do comic book movies, especially at this level of budget and this level of detail. Well, yeah, if they did, they were made for TV and they starred people you'd never heard of and featured a lot of cardboard. Yeah. Well, and what's crazy too, I don't, I, I can't speak for, you know, the, bigger names like i'm sure warren Beatty got a pretty good paycheck for this and al pacino and stuff like that but uh it's not our nostalgia combat but how much do you think uh madonna made for the film 
And mind you, she's she's a pretty (laughs) decently sized character in this. Like, I'd say she's like at least a mid card. uh, I mean, I I guess I would guess a million dollars. I have no idea. Paul, um, hundred thousand. She was paid just thirty five thousand dollars for this movie. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. That's crazy. So I'm, I'm wondering if it wasn't all that uncommon for maybe people to, t- uh, like in this particular film, to be a part of it that maybe some of them had pretty low pay in it. Interesting. Yeah. Because otherwise, you'd think that would be, I mean, that would be a lot of people to, I mean, at this point, you you have Kathy Bates, who was a star from... You, you know, Misery and uh, all the movies she did in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Warren Beatty obviously was a big name. Al Pacino, Mandy Patinkin at this point would have been a uh, decently Kahn. big name. James Caan. Dustin yeah. Hoffman. Would Dustin have been. Hoffman. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like this would have been a cheap film to produce had you had all of these big salaries. So I, I would be curious. I'll do a little bit more digging and see if I can find out a little bit more information about that. Yeah, this was the third movie in which James Caan uh, co-starred with Al Pacino and then was killed in a car. Really? It's kind of an ongoing theme <laughs> from, you know, like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. What was the other one besides The Godfather? Uh I was going to cheat and say the uh, made-for-TV version of Godfather. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> they did it in the um, second movie, in the TV version. <laughs> oh, I gotcha. Because okay. they recut them. <laughs> uh, three sounded better, okay? Hey, I like it. That's fair. We're going to go with yeah. three. Uh, up there with Sean Bean for uh, constant death all the time. Oh, gosh. I think Sean Bean's got the record on that lockdown. Probably. They killed Sonny on the causeway. (laughs) (laughs) That guy has died in more and extremely painful ways than anybody could possibly imagine. In Goldeneye, he died twice. He did. That's true. He got shot and then got dropped like a thousand feet onto a concrete pool thing. Yeah, it was the inside of a satellite dish. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It was the inside of that yeah. satellite dish. Some might call it a cradle. Oh. <laughs> so I guess that wraps up our discussion on Dick. Tracy. <laughs> now moving on to Nostalgia Combat. Nostalgia Combat! I have devised a trivia question for my co-host to answer. Whoever gets it closest will get to lead their chat next week. As a reminder, Paul has Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and Brian has the Christopher Walken. Wait, no, the Sony Walkman, that's right. That's right, you were close, you were close. So, are you guys ready for your question? (laughs) Yes, yes. Yes. All right. So, one of the bigger bands of the 90s, especially coming out of the early 90s in the grunge movement, was Nirvana. Mm. Arguably, their most popular or most famous or iconic album is the album Nevermind. What year 
did Nevermind come to fruition? Is that the Naked Baby cover? That is the Naked what Baby was on cover, the... yep. Okay. I, I have to... I know my albums by the cover more than I know the name. <laughs> there you go. Which is probably a product of the 90s, because that would be a JPEG now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> PNG? <laughs> I don't know. What graphics do the kids have these days? <laughs> They're all uh, imported directly into their brains now. Oh, dang. We lived through bitmaps, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you got any guesses? Four, me- four meg files. You got any guesses, Paul? Uh, no, I'm stalling for time because I haven't got a clue. So I'm going to say it was in the 90s. You gave me that at least as a clue. It was in the 90s. <laughs> 98? I'm going to go with 1991. Oh, all right. One of these two gentlemen got it correct. Brian. You got it. <laughs> I was saying, the suspense was killing me. I'm pretty sure Kurt Cobain died in 94, so I was like, 98 would be would be tough. <laughs> Kurt Cobain's dead? <laughs> yes, uh, my, yes. My, my backup question was going to be, uh, do you know what date the album was released? April 1st? No. <laughs> I would say it came out in the fall, for sure. It did. Uh, September 5th? I have no idea. Well, it's the birth date of somebody very important on this show. Well, my birthday is September 30. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was close to your birthday. It was actually on my birthday, which is six oh! days away from Brian's birthday. September 24, then, yeah. September wow. 24, yeah. September 24, 1991 crazy yeah well there you have it brian will be guiding us through the land of the walkman next time i want to go to the land i of still the had <laughs> the land of the walk i was trying to do a christopher walken thing and i just the don't have the, the timing right who fighters next time I still have Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in my pocket, and now we need to visit the Hopper of Imagination to get Adam a new topic. We want to remind all of our listeners that if there's a topic you'd like to hear us discuss, you can submit those to our website, www.datingourselvespodcast.com. As you folks are probably familiar, um, I have three different topics that all belong to three different categories. I'm going to share those categories with my friend Adam here. He's going to let me know which one sounds the most intriguing, and then I will assign him the topic that belongs to that category. How does that sound, Adam? I uh, couldn't agree with you more, sir. I am very excited for this. Terrific. All right. So, we have pop culture celebrity or video game ooh pop culture celebrity hopefully for 500 please I'd like uh bum cover for 500 please (laughs) that's an album cover uh alright I let's see I don't think we've done a celebrity in a while I think I'm gonna take celebrity Bob 
All right, celebrity it is. And just because I'm curious, I'm going to see who the last time we had a celebrity was. That's got. I want to say maybe Melissa, Melissa Joan, Joan Hart. Hart. I, I think it was Melissa Joan Hart was the last time we did one. Yep. Um, so you actually got um, renowned horror author Stephen King. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, I love me some Stephen King. So, awesome. So, yeah, that's our show, guys. Thanks for joining us on Dating Ourselves. Be sure to check us out next time when I discuss the Sony Walkman. And then on future episodes, Paul will be leading us on a discussion on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Adam on Stephen King. Thanks again for joining us on Dating Ourselves. If you like what you heard, there's more to come. You can check us out at www.datingourselvespodcast.com to learn more about us and the show. And you can check out our Contact Us tab if you'd like to submit your own nostalgic topics. You can also send us your submissions at datingourselvespodcast.aol.com. We've We've got got mail. mail. In addition to iTunes, you can also find us on TuneIn Radio, Google Music, and wherever podcasts are downloaded. Please be sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of the throwback action. Throwback action. Throwback. Oh, there you go. <laughs> We're gonna make it a thing. Throwback action. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So we post additional uh, throwback action content. Throwback action. Throwback action. Man, I like that. I really like that. That's gonna stay around. <laughs> All right, so we post additional content. That's a new content. verb for our show. That's right. Uh, additional content on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash datingourselvespodcast. If you're on Instagram, you can find us there at datingourselvespodcast. And we do the Twitter thing, too, at datedpodcast. And remember, if you're too old for Snapchat and too young for Life Alert, you've just been dating. Bye, guys. See you. Bye-bye. Yeah.